I don't know how many of you have had this experience. You walk into your house and you realize that someone has been there while you've been gone. It's been robbed. Stuff has been stolen. This happened to me when I was in junior high in Marion, Indiana. High school, actually. Came home. I knew my family wasn't going to be home. Walked in, and things looked a little bit different. Walked into the den, and there were some pennies on the ground, and I thought my family had left in a hurry. Front door was open. I thought, well, they must have gone out the front door. Walk upstairs, and every dresser has been pulled over. Every drawer has been overturned, clothes everywhere. Window had been smashed. Stuff had been taken. That sense of having your sense of well-being and peace violated, your personal space violated, vandalized in many ways. It's like our own creation, as I make a shift here, The world in which we live, the life in which we lived, our creation has been robbed. It is, as one writer describes it, it's the vandalism of shalom, shalom meaning peace and wholeness. The peace and wholeness of our world has been vandalized. That's how he defines sin, this vandalism of shalom. Creation is broken, and brokenness is our condition. And I believe that more and more. I've been in pastoral ministry for 31 years, and I think I believe that when I started pastoral ministry, it is now my underlying fundamental assumption of the human condition now after 31 years. We are broken people. It doesn't make us bad people. It just means we're broken. We're wounded. We're hurting. And in many ways, we have been robbed of our joy. We've been robbed of our peace. We've been robbed of our contentment. We have been robbed of creativity. We have been robbed of hope. And sometimes we've been just robbed of reconciliation. So we try to fix things and repair ourselves. We end up functioning in our own strength and our own power. We attend a conference. We read a highly recommended self-help book. And we follow a personal development guru on TV. And all the time looking for a secret to fix what we sense to be wrong deep down within. And I don't want to say those don't add to our growth and our development. I have them. You can look at my library. I benefit from that. But this never seems to fix it completely. had a conversation with a friend recently, and I was seeking advice, just his input, on the whole experience of addiction. This friend is in recovery. And so I was trying to get a sense from him, how does this work? What can I do? What is the experience of people in that place? And I was trying to ask about all the the sort of what to do, kind of how-to things. And I'll never forget what he said. This is what he said near the end of the conversation. He says, but you always have to remember, this is a spiritual problem, and it needs a spiritual solution. And I thought, wow. Here is a person who is in recovery. And he's probably telling most pastoral ministers along this nation something that we tend to forget. This is a spiritual problem, and it needs a spiritual solution. And I was struck by how often, including myself, we'll look at these issues in our lives and we'll try to fix or try to control or manage. And it's hard to come to that place to declare our life kind of unmanageable. Even more important, to come to a place where we just can't fix ourselves. 
But we need to look deeper, as he says, into this spiritual journey and recognize that our spiritual issues need a spiritual solution. Pastor and author Trevor Hudson considers this question, and he writes this, the question, how can we live well? He calls that question one of the great questions of our time. And he adds this, modern answers to this question don't seem to be working. In spite of the tidal flood of techniques for self-fulfillment and personal commitment, there exists this ever-growing number of sad incidences of despair, suicide, addiction, and emptiness. And what seems to be a tragic inability even to get along with those we want to love most. And then he adds, we appear to have little idea about how to live. Now, this is spoken from a man who has tremendous experience because he is a Methodist pastor in South Africa and has lived for years among the violence and the struggles and the stresses of relationships there in South Africa and what to do and how to do it and among the poverty. But I don't think it changes. I think from country to country, city to city, community to community, family to family, I think there is that struggle we sometimes have little idea about how to live and how to live well. Reminds me of a story of a, an American rancher I heard recently who believed life's greatest opportunity was to have the biggest and best of everything. He had a bumper sticker on the back of his Hummer, and you've probably seen this. It read this, the man with the most toys wins. Well, he made it clear that when he died, he wanted to be buried inside his Hummer wearing a tuxedo while all the guests sipped champagne. So when the man died and came time to bury him, the coffin was placed inside his hummer, lowered by a crane into the ground. And as the coffin was lowered and everybody held up their champagne glasses and made a toast, one person was, said, one person was heard to say to another, Now, boy, that's what I call living. It'll come. I wait. I've got 20 minutes. Is it really, though? Is that really what we call living? To have the biggest car, to be buried in it when we die, to have everybody raise a glass of champagne to us, even ones that we can't even see or know are there by that time. We're called back to this place and source of abundance, this word that pops up in this passage that Pat read. The living Christ, the the risen Jesus, our divine teacher. Abundance isn't a virtue that we master or a habit. It's a posture of the soul. It's a disposition that comes from experiencing abundance for ourselves. God in Christ seeks to make our lives full, to give us this full life. Not with a hummer, not with being buried in it, not with anything else, but to be in relationship with Christ. Here's some of the translations of John 10.10. I've come in order that you might have life, life in all of its fullness. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Here's one that maybe you've heard before. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or, I came so that they could have life, indeed that they could live life to the fullest. And then I like this one. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Now listen to those words. 
I came that they could have life. They could live life to the fullest. We really were designed to live a full life. We really were designed and created to live life to the fullest. It's just a question of how do I live life to the fullest? In what way do I experience that? In what way do I choose to get at that? I remember sitting in an interview years ago, the seminary I attended, and I was on a search committee for a new dean. And I'll never forget what he said. It's classic theology, but I was hearing it for the first time. He was talking about the spiritual search, the emptiness of human beings, and our search for fulfillment. And he says this, everybody has a God-sized shaped hole in their heart. And my mind immediately went, because my kids were younger back then, my mind immediately went to that little game where you have the little bench and you hammer the shapes into the holes, either a hole, a star, or a square. And, you know, the kids would try to take the star and hammer it into the square. They'd try to take the square and hammer it into the circle hole. But it wouldn't work because it wouldn't fit. You had to put the star hole, the star on the star hole, square, and circle. And I got to thinking how many times we try to take things in our life and fit it into that God-sized hole, and it just doesn't fit. It will not work. And we think it may bring me fulfillment, but it doesn't. It doesn't last very long. I may fill my emptiness with other things, stuff, activity, even good activity, maybe with busyness, sometimes even with a good cause, maybe anger, resentment, judgmentalism, maybe some kind of ideology. But when this happens, we move away from this place of abundance to this place of scarcity and competition. I know when I have moved away from that place of abundance to that place of scarcity, when I experience insecurity, I overfunction in my life. I get anxious. I try to control people or circumstances or others. Or my people-pleasing mode kicks into high gear and my need for approval is off the charts. And I realize that I am just in a whole place of scarcity. I'm not in this place of abundance of relationship with Christ. And Jesus invites us back into this relationship, a relationship that has as its center a place of fullness, a place of abundance, this center that's full of grace. And I want to live as much as I can from that center, from that place of abundance. So my life's journey and my spiritual journey is one of generosity, is one of encouragement, is one of grace. Because when I don't live from that place, my journey takes on a whole different look. One of taking, one of judging, and often one of diminishing of others. I want to quote Trevor Hudson again, and here's what he has to say about John chapter 10. He writes on Jesus' words that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then he adds this. Whenever I am asked why I've chosen to follow Christ, this gospel sentence comes immediately to mind. I choose to be a Christ follower not because he satisfies my every need or removes all my problems or makes me feel good. And by the way, I could probably take a poll here this morning and pretty much find a majority of people could attest to the fact that I live this spiritual journey. I'm a Christ follower, but I can tell you my life has not been perfect. Everything has not turned out perfectly. He adds this, My life is often characterized by unmet needs. 
seemingly unsolvable problems and uncomfortable feelings. But I follow Jesus of Nazareth because I am convinced that through his living, his dying, and his rising, he discloses God's way in which life can be most truly lived, and it can be lived well. And I have come to discover that more and more. And sometimes I'm very far away from it. Sometimes I'm really, really close to it. Sometimes when I live into this experience of Jesus as the way to life, I experience a contentment and a peace and a sense of inward security that I cannot get from anywhere else. But when I move away from that and try to find it in other things, that's when I get anxious. That's when I get controlling. That's when I get manipulative. That's when I get jumpy. That's when I am out of sync. So living out of that place of abundance is so key, I think, for all of us, for myself, for our own spiritual journey. Let me just suggest a couple things and then we'll begin to close. Living out of that place of abundance is to live in the way of Jesus or the Jesus way. To know that Jesus way is is that way to life that is life-giving. It's how we were designed and intended to live. In other words, look at Jesus, how Jesus lived. We will discover what it means to live an abundant life. How did Jesus live? He prayed. He lived in close relationship with God. He took time for himself. He got away from folks, but he offered himself to folks in love, in service, in ministry. He lived with a deep sense that he was loved by God, and God continually reaffirmed that. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. To look at how Jesus lived is also to know how we can live this abundant life, this life that can be lived well. And it seems kind of overwhelming because we think, well, Jesus was the son of God. He was divine. It doesn't seem like it's fair. It seems like he has the edge, the advantage. But let's not also forget the humanity of Jesus that lived in relationship with God, that had to live it out in streets and communities in relationship with people, that had to offer forgiveness just like we are called to offer forgiveness as well. So to follow in that way of Jesus is important. Living out of that place of abundance is also to live from a place of grace, to see life and others as a gift, to receive it as a gift, to share it with others in this very tangible way. There's this wonderful passage in Acts 4, verses 32 and 33, that talks about the community of believers. And here's what it says. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was work among them all. I love that phrase, abundance of grace. When it's at work within a community of believers, there is a sharing spirit, there is a caring spirit, there is a sense of unity and a oneness in heart and mind. But what does it look like when our hearts are filled with an abundance of grace? We become generous people. We become sharing people. We become giving people. We receive people as they are, and we bless them, and we want their good, and we want their well-being. And then living out of this place of abundance is to open ourselves up to this possibility of flourishing in our life. And yes, there's that word again. It's my word that 
I have been given in some ways by the Spirit, and it just stays with me because if I have one wish, dream, prayer for all of you, it is this, that you can discover in your life how to live well and flourish and live from a place of abundance so that one's life is not lived in constant turmoil of anxiousness and nervousness and despair and trying to seek approval and trying to somehow get that from sources that will never give it to you. If I could give myself to one thing for the rest of my life, that is what it would be. Because I'm convinced that when we can live from that place of abundance and flourishing, it changes things in our life, our relationships. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we treat people. It changes how we do life and the rhythms of our life and the pace of our life. It makes a difference. This past Friday, Linda and I were at Greensboro Airport, and we were making some uh, airport pickups for this Quaker gathering down at Caraway, which ends this afternoon. And we were waiting for one friend coming in from Philadelphia to Greensboro. And so it was about 7.30 in the evening, and um, her plane had just landed. You could see it on the, uh, on, the, on the screen. So people were coming from uh, the gate area into the terminal. And as we waited, I heard this person say this, slow. And I looked around, and I heard it again, slow. And then I heard it one more time, slow. And I looked up, and there was a family, a couple with their two young daughters, and they had come from the gate area into the terminal. And the littlest girl, about four or five years old, was just kind of moving along, moving along very quickly. Maybe she's about three or four. And as she was moving along very quickly, ahead of mom and dad, the dad was saying, slow, slow. And on the third slow, she began to stop, and I watched her, and she kind of had that look like, I'm going to take one more step. <laughs> and he looked at her, and he looked at her, and he said, come. And she stopped, and she walked right back to her dad. And it wasn't in any kind of domineering or manipulative way. It was in a very tender way. He didn't want her to be hurt. He didn't want her to get lost. He didn't want to lose her. And she trusted her father enough to go back to him when he said, come. And that stayed with me the whole weekend and even more. Because what I realized was that there are times in my life as Quakers like to say, I totally outrun my guide. I am going at breakneck speed. I am not living in that place of abundance. I am not living out of that place of grace. I am just going, going, going. I am feverishly trying to accumulate stuff in my life that will give me meaning. And I hear the Spirit say this, slow. And then I hear the Spirit say, slow. And then I hear the Spirit say, slow, and I stop. And then God invites me to come and to walk alongside him, to hold God's hand, and to be in that place and relationship where I can trust God more, that you know what is best for me.
and I'll walk alongside you. I might even walk behind you a few times. That would probably be a better thing. But at least I'm not going to continually try to walk ahead of you. Maybe the Spirit is speaking that to you this morning. Maybe the Spirit is saying to you, slow. Take a few moments. Just stop. Look at your life. What are you trying to fill the emptiness with that just is not doing the trick anymore? How have you run so far ahead of that place of abundance and grace that you're just trying to satisfy the emptiness with stuff that just doesn't fill? And the Spirit is just inviting you back into that place where you walk alongside God and allow God to take you by the hand and say, let's walk together. Let's do this together. And it will be well.